I mean, all of these wrongful conviction cases, ultimately the system works. People do want to tell their stories. You break the law, there are consequences. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to True Crime and Consequences. I'm Kari. And I'm Brian. And we're a husband and wife who like to shoot the shit about true crime. So we are still talking about the Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey case, more commonly referred to as making a murderer for those who have Netflix and like true crime, like myself. And I believe we left off with, well, talking about the fact that the lawsuit that Stephen and his lawyers filed against Manitowoc County and several of their, we'll call them employees, representatives, I don't know what you want to call them, but uh, had some unintended consequences. And uh, yeah, it was kind of not ironic, but I guess it is kind of ironic that uh, Stephen's attorneys had told him when he filed the lawsuit that, you know, the media was going to dig up a bunch of stuff. Law enforcement was going to dig up a bunch of stuff. And they were going to try to throw everything they could at him to kind of discredit him and try to void the lawsuit. And, um, oh, boy, were they right. Boy, were they right. They didn't, they didn't even know to warn him about what happened next. Uh, so right in the middle of all the depositions that were going on in the fall of 2005, I mean, literally right in the middle, but before some of the key players could be deposed, um, the sheriff at the time in 1985 and several other key players who were the ones who really, really kind of uh, spearheaded the anti-Stephen Avery campaign at the time were preparing to be deposed when on Halloween of 2005, a beautiful young woman by the name of Teresa Halbach, who was a photographer, uh, she was a freelance photographer, but she spent a lot of her time working for Auto Trader magazine, which I don't even know if that still exists. But when we were youngins, it was a magazine that you could find at pretty much for free at almost every gas station and convenience store known to man. It had advertisements for local vehicles for sale. And I can't remember if it was city by city or county by county or how it worked, but you could find a lot of really great deals on used cars. It's kind of a, it was like the magazine version of the car section of Craigslist. They have an online version now. Oh, do they? Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, everyone, most people should be familiar with Auto Trader. I mean, unless you're like 16 years old and then maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. But so she worked for that a lot, which means she would go out to people's properties and take photos of vehicles that they wanted to sell. And of course, given that Avery Salvage Yard was a salvage yard. And um, so a salvage yard is basically, at least for vehicles, is where they will either get for free or purchase for incredibly cheap vehicles that are no longer working for whatever reason. And they will either fix whatever's broken if it's something super simple and cheap to fix and then flip the car. So they'll fix it and then they'll sell it. Or they will part out the car and sell those parts to various dealerships and, and uh, 
just whoever needs you, parts for their car. You sell the valuable parts and then you sell the rest for scrap. Right, exactly. And that's what they did for a living. And it was quite a lucrative business. They had a large 40-acre piece of property. Over three quarters of it was full of cars. And they were able to part out what they could and then scrap out the rest and make a decent living. And I mean, because his father, uh, Alan Avery, had, I believe, was second generation salvage, which makes Stephen and his brothers third generation Avery salvage. And they were, I mean, they made a good living. It wasn't, they weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but they were able to survive comfortably, you know, and they had this nice piece of property and most of the family actually, not all, but most of the family actually lived on the property because there was a kind of a, a corner of it that had all their homes on it and whatnot, usually manufactured homes or trailers. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a good living. It was a good job. And, you know, it's hard work, but... It's what they did. It's what, what they knew. Those kids, Stephen and his brothers, uh, Chuck and Earl, and their his, their sister Barb, grew up on that salvage yard and grew up doing that work. Now, from my understanding, Barb had no, she's a girl. She had no desire to do that for a living. So she she went off kind of on her own in her teen years. But but the boys, Stephen and Earl and Chuck, all worked at the salvage yard from the time they were children. And I mean little children. Like Stephen talks a lot about how he was helping salvage cars when he was six years old. You know, and he would go to school and then he and he didn't do very well in school because he had a low IQ. I, he had an IQ of 70. And so he didn't do well in school. His thing was working with his hands. He was always really, really good at working with his hands because that's what he'd been taught. So when he was in high school, he'd go to school, he'd come home. And he'd work the yard. And they would they even had they rented a, a car crusher a few times a year. And they would so that the ones that they weren't able they would take all the parts out of it and then crush the frame and the the body and then sell that to, you know, whoever Scrap Steel. Scrap Steel, yeah. So it was a good good deal. Well, Teresa Hallbach had been out there about five or six times. Well, if you include Halloween, it was about six times taking various photos of vehicles that they wanted to sell to be published in Auto Trader. Um, she also did a few what are known as, in the photography world, hustle shots, which is where, um, because when she would get called via Auto Trader to do a photo, I don't, I don't know if you'd call it a photo shoot, but I guess you would, of these vehicles, she would make like a set dollar amount per photo. So it was like, eight nine dollars per photo via auto trader but if she set up a hustle shot which is where someone would call her directly on her cell phone or she would reach out to them directly and set up a photo shoot then she could keep all the money so it would be like 12 to whatever dollars a photo so she made more money if she did hustle shots so and she had done that a few times for various members of the avery family as well and she made more money when she did it that way. But on this particular day, Halloween of 2005, Stephen called Auto Trader that morning, Auto Trader Magazine, the office itself, and said, hey, um, got a vehicle for sale. Can you send out that girl to take some photos? And he was referring to Teresa because Teresa was the only photographer for Auto Trader in that area. So they, it's not like they had a plethora of photographers and you you, you know you just get whoever. Teresa was the one who was assigned to that 
particular region. region. And so she, they were like, hey, can you send her out? And at first they were like, well, she's busy today. I'm not sure if she's going to have time. But then it turned out she had a break in her schedule in the middle of the day. So, so Stephen called her directly after he talked to Auto Trader and said, hey, I called Auto Trader. You know, can you come out and do? She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there around, you know, 2, 2.30. He says, great, perfect. So 2.30-ish rolls around and Teresa pulls up in her 1999 green Toyota RAV4, parks it next to the van, in, which was parked in front of Steven's trailer. She'd been there before, so she was familiar with the layout of the property. Um, she got out of the car. Steven came out and started taking photos because she knew what she was taking pictures of. He came out with $40 for her for the photos that she took and a little piece of scrap of paper that he'd written all the the vehicle details on. So like the VIN number, the year, the make, the model, how much they wanted for it, that sort of the thing. The accessories it has, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I don't really think was any. But he gave her the paper with the basic information so that when she got back to Auto Trader's office, she could give them the photos and the paper and they could publish it in the magazine like they had numerous times before. And uh, so she took the photos. He gave her the stuff. Um, he walked her to her car. She got in the car. This is according to Stephen. She handed him a f- new, a brand new copy of Auto Trader magazine. She kept a stack of the brand new ones in her vehicle to give to her clients. Said bye, have a nice day, and left. Stephen took the magazine, walked back into his trailer. He put the magazine down next to his computer. He said, and the. Uh, Receipt that she'd given him, um, it was a blank uh, bill of sale. So if when he that way, when he sold the car to whoever saw the ad in Auto Trader, he had a bill of sale ready to go. And then he went back outside because he was going to go talk to Bobby Dassey, which was his sister Barb's son. Um, but Bobby had left. He'd been there. When Teresa was there, because he had seen Bobby's vehicle in front of Barb's house, which was right next door to his. But when he walked back out, Bobby's rig was gone. So he was like, oh, okay, well, Bobby's not there, so I can't go talk to him. So he turned around, went back into his house. And then he sat for a while and waited because he was expecting a call from his fiance Jody, who was in jail at the time for the DUI that I talked about in the last episode. And she usually called around 5 o'clock. And then again around 8 eight or 9 o'clock. So he went to wait for her call. And that was pretty much it. And he also says that when he went out to go talk to Bobby and realized Bobby wasn't there, he looked down the road and he saw Teresa in her RAV4 turning left onto the highway from the end of their street, end of their road, which was Avery Road. That's the last time he saw her according to him. Okay. Well, after she left Avery Salvage... And turned left onto the highway, according to Stephen's version of the story. She vanished. Poof. Out of thin air. She was just gone. He was the last person to see her? According to her records of that day, yes. So, of course, nobody knew that she had vanished at that moment. But Stephen was the last person to see her as she turned left onto the highway from Avery Road. Well, a few days later, Teresa's mother, Karen Halbach, gets a phone call from Teresa's roommate, Scott Blodorn. Or no, I'm sorry, I am totally mixing up 
sorry, I have a lot of notes in front of me, in front of me, and I'm mixing things up. Uh, ter- Karen Halbach, Teresa's mother, got a phone call from one of Teresa's coworkers at Auto Trader, and said, which said, "Hey, Teresa hasn't shown up at work in a few days, and we can't get a hold of her. What's going on?" Karen's like, "Well, I don't know. Let me see if I can track her down. Maybe she's sick or something." So she calls Scott Blodorn, which was Teresa's roommate. Uh, and he's, she says, hey, uh, Teresa hasn't been at work. What's going on? And Scott's like, uh, well, I haven't seen her either. Uh, she left on the 31st, you know, to go to work, and I haven't seen her since. And, of course, Karen's like, well, why didn't you call me? Why, you know, it's, that's not like Teresa to just drop off the face of the earth like that. So after Scott gets off the phone with Teresa's mom, Karen, he calls the police to report Teresa missing. And uh, the police come and talk to him. And during his initial talks with the police, he told them that it was completely unlike Teresa to just disappear. In fact, she never spent the night away from home, ever. This was how much after? Uh, let's see. I believe that was November 3rd or 4th. Let me look. I think it was the 4th. But this is a few days after she... She vanished on October 31st on Halloween. And this was like November 3rd or 4th. And so she never... She never stays away from home overnight. She and it took her mother getting a call from Auto Trader saying she hadn't been to work for and her calling her roommate for her roommate to apparently be concerned enough to call the police. She never stays out overnight. And he made a point to tell but I'm them not that. concerned until somebody else calls. Right. He made a point to tell them that. And that has always to this day struck me as so odd that he would make such a point of that. That she never stayed home away from home overnight, at least and espe- at least not without telling someone. I would assume, and it took you three, four days to report her missing, and it it took a series of other events to get you to do it. Like I don't understand that. I don't know. Maybe he just I don't know. He kind of I mean, if you've seen Making a Murderer, you've seen what he looks like, and he kind of strikes me as a bit odd. So I mean, I don't know. I, and again, that's just me. Like he, but he strikes me as. And odd. maybe he just didn't know what to do. It wasn't actually. Maybe he didn't. Concerned. I mean, maybe he thought it wasn't his place to like report her missing, or maybe he thought. I. Don't, I mean, I don't know what he thought. She. Well, he may have thought she doesn't need to check with me if she decides. You know, she wants to. Which is absolutely true. She was twenty five years old. It's and you just know, a roommate. So right. Well, yeah. I mean, they were friends too, but. And so then they got her, so they call, after they talk to the police, you know, they also talk to Teresa's ex-boyfriend, Ryan Hillegas, to see if he'd seen her, obviously, or talked to her, because they were still friends. According to Ryan, they were still friends, even after they broke up. And uh, he claimed that he had seen her um, on the 30th or the 31st during the day, like during the morning time, but that he hadn't seen her since either. So at this point, what the police are determining is nobody has seen Teresa or talked to Teresa since October 31st, which is, of course, very odd because everyone 
who knew her that the police were talking to were like, this is not like her. She doesn't just disappear. She doesn't not communicate. She's not answering her phone. She's not answering text messages. She didn't call in to work and she didn't show up. That's not her at all, you know. So, of course, when you when the police start hearing multiple people saying this is not even though she's 25 years old and technically legally has a right to disappear if she wants to. Because it's such odd behavior for her, because it's so out of character for her, they immediately took the situation seriously because, and that's, I've seen that in other cases. Like, you know, you hear a lot of stories about people reporting their adult family members or friends missing. And a lot of times the cops will just be like, well, they can go missing if they want to, you know, or they're, you know, they're an adult. They can do whatever they want. They don't take it as seriously as they should. But what you hear oftentimes is that if they are told by multiple people associated with that person that this is completely and totally out of character, they tend to take it a little more seriously from the jump. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. So they start digging into Teresa's life, obviously, and uh, where she had been because they determined that the last time she was heard from was October 31st. So, of course, they go to Auto Trader. And talk to them, like, you know, where was she going that day? What was she doing that day? Who was she working with? And they gave them a list of at least what appointments they knew about. Because if she had scheduled any hustle shots or anything, they would have had no way of knowing that. But um, they did give the police a list of where she was supposed to be going that day that they knew about. And um, there were three addresses in the vicinity of Avery Salvage, which obviously included Avery Salvage. So they kind of started with like the first one that she was supposed to go to. Um, So they went there and they're like, yeah, she came, she took the photo, she left. So then they're like, okay, cool. So then they go to Avery Salvage, which was supposed to be her next stop. And they talked to Steven and you know, they said, was she here? And he said, yes. And they said, what time? And he said, about 2.30. And how long was she there? About five minutes. And, you know, and he goes, okay. And then and he's like, and then she left. And, and they're like, okay. And he goes, and I saw her pull off the road and turn left on the highway. And they're like, oh, okay. Which would have been the appropriate direction given where her next appointment was. In order to get to her next appointment, she would have had to turn left on the highway. Okay. And, and, he, and they're like, oh, okay. So they leave, right? Because now they're going to go to the next address of where she was supposed to go. Well, they go to the next address, and she never got there. She never went to the next address. Or at least the person says that she didn't get there. The person that they talked to at the next address says she never showed up. So, um, And there were, as far as I know, um, some records that seemed to back that up, but cell phone pings and that kind of thing. Um, but pings can be incredibly unreliable also anyway, Quite frankly, they're not an exact science. And no. if you have more than one tower within like a 15 to 20 mile radius, you could ping off the tower that's 20 miles away. But when reality, you're actually closer to the other one, but it's just signal stuff. It's It's been known to happen. So, uh, of course, that sends them back to Avery Salvage and to Steven. Because at this point, what they're determining is he's the last person to have seen her. So, which, I mean, I get that. He's the suspected last person she saw. Well, right, because the reality is, depending on what happened to her, whoever did that to her would be the last person who saw her. 
Right. Which could be Stephen, could be her next appointment, or could be somebody who caught her in between. In between. Right. So, um, obviously, the family, uh, Teresa's family, which included her mother, Karen, her brother, Mike, her uh, father, Scott, her roommate, her ex-boyfriend, Ryan, everyone's concerned. Uh, obviously. Yeah. I mean, this woman has vanished. And as we all know, nothing ever good comes from someone just vanishing like that. So trying to find her as quickly as possible is imperative. However, we also know from police investigation into missing persons cases that the first 24 to 48 hours after someone goes missing are the most crucial hours. And those are already gone. Long gone. I mean, she wasn't even reported missing till she'd already been missing for at least 72 hours, if not a little longer. Those crucial moments are gone. And the police know that. So they know they're kind of uh, swimming upstream here, like trying to, to backtrack and catch up and find yeah. out what happened to her. So on November 5th, um, they start conducting, well, I think a few searches had actually been started prior to that, like the day before. But on November 5th, there was a pivotal search because, um, so after Stephen had been questioned about Teresa's uh, visit to his property and everything, Stephen started to suspect pretty quickly that the police were paying an inordinate amount of attention to him. And that, of course, given his situation prior, made him very nervous. That's understandable. Completely understandably nervous. And so he decided that the family was going to go up to their cabin their cabin in Crivets, which is up in Marinette County, um, still in Wisconsin. But it's about 90 minutes or so away from the Avery Salvage Yard. And the whole family went, um, with the exception of... Um, one of the brothers, he decided to come up a little bit later because it was still a, a work week and there were a few like loose ends that they had to tie up at, at the salvage yard before he could go up, which I believe was uh, Earl or maybe it was Chuck. I can't, it was one of the brothers. But um, on November 5th, while the search party was conducting searches of that general area, trying to see if they could find any clues as to where Teresa might have gone or what may have happened to her, a party of two which included Pam Sturm and her daughter, Nicole, who was actually uh, cousins of Teresa, although I'm not sure how exactly they're related, but they're, they're cousins in some fashion. And uh, had went on to the Avery Salvage property and talked to Chuck or Earl, whichever brother was there, I can't remember right now, and asked if it was okay if they searched the yard, you know, for any evidence of Teresa, since she'd been on the, on the property and he was like sure like you know of course we want to help you know so nicole and pam start searching the yard now remember this is a 40 acre piece of property it's huge and the the section of property that has the cars is also huge and in the youtube version of this this podcast i'll have some photos uh photo uh what's the word i'm looking for slideshow going and i actually have a couple aerial shots of the property to kind of for those of you who can watch that version can have some scale 
as to what we're dealing with here in, in size. It was huge. I mean, 40 acres is a lot bigger than it sounds. It's huge. And over half of it was the cars. So it, it's big. Pam and her daughter, Nicole, enter the property uh, sometime in the morning. It was like 10, 10, 10, 15, somewhere in there, 10-ish. And before they entered the property, they spoke to Ryan Hillegas, which was, uh, he was actually head of the search party, and this was Teresa's ex-boyfriend. And before they went on to the property to start searching, after they got permission to go on, they went back to Ryan, and Ryan gave them a camera, okay, like a, like a, I don't know if it was a, a camera camera or like one of those disposable cameras, but it was a camera, a map of the property that I believe they'd gotten from probably from an aerial view and a, a phone number. And that phone number was a direct line to Sheriff Poggle. Let me take a step back. Sheriff Poggle is the, is the sheriff of Calumet County which is an adjacent county to Manitowoc County. Now, the reason he's the phone number that they were given is because of Stephen's lawsuit against Manitowoc County. There's an obvious conflict of interest. Just a little one. Just, just you know, 36 million conflicts of interest. So <laughs> the decision was made quite quickly after it was determined that Stephen was a person of interest in the case because they determined pretty quickly he was a person of interest in the case that Manitowoc County could have no involvement in anything having to do with this situation because of the conflict of interest, because they didn't want any indications of impropriety or anything like that. So the district attorney who was put kind of in charge of the investigation was Ken Kratz. He was the district attorney of Calumet County and the sheriff, Sheriff Poggle, was the sheriff in Calumet County and he was put in charge of, of him and, and Ken together were put in charge of investigating Teresa's disappearance because of who was involved, because Stephen was involved at this point. So they made a big stink about publicly in press conferences stating that Manitowoc County was going to have nothing to do with this investigation. They were going to have no, they weren't even going to be there was kind of the insinuation, right? Like because of this conflict of interest, boy, was that a lie, but we'll get there. So Pam and Nicole were given a direct phone number. Like, I don't know if it was a cell phone number or what, but they were given a number to Sheriff Poggle himself, not a detective, not a sheriff's deputy, not, to Poggle himself. I should clarify that Pam and Nicole were the only members of the search party on any of the search days to be given a camera and a direct phone number to Sheriff Poggle. The only ones. The only ones. So they enter the Avery Salvage Yard property on one of the corners that had a uh, on the vehicle side of the property where all the vehicles were stashed in, in the yard. They enter the property and within 20 to 30 minutes, they find a green SUV that from a slight distance looks like it could be Teresa's. And as they got closer, 
uh, Pam very quickly realized that it was a a Toyota RAV4, which was the same make and model as Teresa's vehicle. It was the same color as Teresa's vehicle. It looked a lot like Teresa's vehicle. And it was sitting kind of right in front of an embankment that on the side of the property and that embankment kind of went up and there was a little grove of trees. And then as you go to the other side, it was the, um, there was a big gravel pit because it was no longer the Avery's property on that side of the, uh, a berm. It was a berm. Okay. And on the other side of the berm from this vehicle that they found was actually the, um, Redont gravel pit. And it was basically, it's a big quarry, right? Like a rock quarry. And so, Half of it is the Redont gravel pit, and the other half of it actually belongs to Manitowoc County. It's the Manitowoc County gravel pit. Um, And that's on the other side of the berm from where this car was. That'll come into play later, I promise. So she's standing there looking at the car, and she's like, okay, this looks like Teresa's car. It same color, same make and model. She tries to look because she has she knows what the plate numbers are, but she realizes there's no plates on this car, which is pretty common in, in salvage yard vehicles. They take the plates off. Well, and and actually in some states you have to. Oh, sure. But the point is there were no plates. So she calls the phone number she was given and speaks to Sheriff Poggle. And she says, I think I found the car. And Sheriff Poggle's like, okay. And she goes, but it doesn't have plates on it. So, and he ex- instructs her to go to the front driver's side of the car and look through the windshield onto the dashboard and see if there's a, a little, the little metal tag with the VIN number on it, which there was. So she reads off this, this, you know, letter number combo that is a VIN number for a car. And then, uh, he says, he write, you know, you can tell he's like either writing it down or, or just listening. And then he says, okay, uh, where are you? And she goes, well, is this the car? And he goes, where are you? And she says, no, you have to tell me if this is the car. And he says, I can't tell you that. Where are you? And she says, I'm at Avery Salvage. Well, the floodgates are open now because it was Teresa's car. Okay. Right. So immediately, police swarm the Avery Salvage Yard property. I mean, swarm. They're everywhere. Well, you have to. Of course. I understand You have to protect any evidence that might be there. So they send an officer to guard the car. But you would think, right, that since they had determined that Manitowoc County was going to have nothing to do with this and everything was going to be under the control of Calumet County, that, you know... The officer who was guarding the car would be a Calumet County Sheriff's deputy, right? Well, yes and no. Uh, Ultimately, yes, but immediately, since it'd take a while for Calumet County to get there. Calumet County was already out there involved with the search party effort. Okay. Not a bunch of them, but some of them. And there might have been some Manitowoc officers, too, because they were, you know, searching for her because there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But the officer assigned to guard the car was a Manitowoc County officer. So, you know, right there, it's a little like, "Mm, maybe that's not a good idea. Like, you need to swap that out for a Calumet, like, as quickly as you can. Because that's, you know, there's a a huge conflict. You cannot have them involved. You just can't. And and it seemed like they were were understanding that initially, but... Um, nothing that happened from this point on, I mean, 
Manitowoc County had their hands literally in every single step of this investigation. And when I say had their hands in it, I mean that completely literally. There was always Manitowoc County deputies and various other law enforcement officers searching, actively searching the property inside Stevens' trailer. They were everywhere. Their grubby little fingerprints are all over this investigation. From minute one. That's, uh, that's quite a conflict. Even though on every single press conference they did, that, that Poggle and, and Kratz did, they kept pushing that narrative that they had nothing to do with the investigation. Publicly that, saying that they, that they don't, there, but that, they really did. And then did. when they were called out on it, because <laughs> as you'll come to find as we continue to talk about this, evidence, evidence, and I'm air quoting, evidence that was found in the case was almost always found, also air quoting, by Manitowoc employees. That's interesting. Um, but the car wasn't, right? No, the car was found by Teresa's cousin. Okay, but not a Manitowoc official. No, 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 no. No. So that makes it's just interesting that the car was found on their property. I I agree, absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I have a theory as to how that happened, but I'm not going to express my my theory until the end of this series. So uh, fair enough. I I don't want. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I don't want. I think most people will be able, based on how I talk about it. I think most people will. Be, We'll be able to figure out where I am on this, but um, I will express it in words of my own when we get to that point, because it actually falls in line with uh, one of the attorney's opinions as well. And we'll get to that as well. So, of course, after the car was found, police immediately seized the yard and began uh, detailed searches of the area and of Stephen's trailer and other buildings on the property of course very understandably absolutely absolutely uh steven was interviewed at the cabin in Crivitz on november 5th so they found the car in the morning of november 5th and they already had a marinette county investigator which is Crivitz is in marinette county and um so they asked the marinette county deputy to go or investigator to go speak to steven because the family was at the cabin in Crivitz. So they go up there, or he goes to talk to him, and he sits there and talks to Stephen. Now, the first conversation they have is pretty cash. You know, he, he ex- again, explains what happened on Halloween with Teresa, that it was a really short interaction, blah, blah, blah. Then the detective, investigator, whatever they're called, hits him with a bombshell and is like, well, then why was her car found on your property? And Stephen's like, what? Like, he was he was pretty understandably shocked that he's like, I don't know why the car would be there. I didn't put it there. Like, you know, and they were like, well, you know, it looks pretty bad. And da, 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 da. he's like, but well, at this does. point, all they had was a car, though. I mean, you know, I know, but it does. I agree it looks bad. It's, no, I agree. He's the last person to see it. The car is on the Avery lot minus the plates. It. That would indicate that somebody who worked at the lot or owned the lot or, or had access to the lot 
was involved. No, I absolutely agree. And he would be the suspect to go to because absolutely. he was the last I'm one not, to see her. I'm not at all disagreeing with you. It was completely understandable that they looked at him and that they looked, especially after the car was found and that they looked at him seriously. I absolutely agree with that. I'm not saying they shouldn't have looked into him at all. Of course they should have. Like, it would be irresponsible not to. But as you'll see as we go through this, there's just stuff that I can't reconcile in my own head as to how certain things just sort of appeared. And what I mean is like, Magic evidence. We'll, we'll get into that. But, but um, I'm just saying at this point, everything is progressing in a logical order. For the moment, absolutely. Yeah, no question. Um, but Stephen is obviously also concerned because yeah, he has already had really bad experiences with these with, with the law enforcement officials in the area. And he had people who were friends of his who were, because they were in Krivitz, which was like a quite a ways away from there, So they didn't see what was happening, but some of Stephen's neighbors and friends were seeing what was happening and they were even telling him Manitowoc's in there, dude. Like Manitowoc is in your house right now, you know, and he's like, but they said they weren't going to let man. What the hell? Like, so now he's really concerned. Oh, yeah. Because the officers that he's freaking suing are in his house. Searching for evidence of a missing per in a missing persons case, and he's already been railroaded. And he's already by been them railroaded once. once so That's... who's to say? And he's suing them for thirty six million dollars. So he's worried, totally, completely, understandably worried. But I agree with you. Up till this point, the investigation is going in the direction it should. You know, they should be looking at these things. So I'm not saying they were all wrong, but there's some wrong that happens. Uh, God, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Um, Stephen obviously felt really early on that he wasn't just a person of interest now. He really was like, okay, I'm clearly like a freaking suspect here. Like, because there is a difference between a person of interest and a suspect. He was a person of interest probably to start with since he was the last person to see her. Sure. But now well, he's... Now they've got the, the car. He's a suspect. Right. <clears throat> Even though there's a whole bunch of other people who live on that property. So, I mean, I'm just saying like. Yes, but your primary would be the one you knew had contact with her. Oh, of course. And I so. understand that because I do understand how law enforcement thinks. Like, I, I do get it. So, during, the, the, the police seized the salvage yard, obviously. And they searched the yard and all the homes and outbuildings and buildings on it for eight days. Which is pretty unprecedented. Normally, when they're doing a search, they go in and they look, you know, once, maybe twice through a building and they clear it because they didn't find anything. And that's the end of the day. You know what I mean? Like, that that's just it. They didn't find anything. They're done. Yeah, it's a large property, so it would take a long time to go through the whole property. Did they need to search Stephen's house eight times? I wouldn't think when so. When nobody's been there? Twice? Nobody's... You know, maybe twice I understand. Did I miss something? Twice I understand, and a lot of times they'll do it twice. They'll go in, do a sweep once, and then they'll take another one or two officers that haven't been in there yet in for another set of eyes or two to see if they missed anything. But once that's done and nothing's been found, usually the home or business or car or whatever it is is released back to the person who owns it. Or 
Yeah, I mean, but I mean, if you go in there, if and they you don't had a find warrant, anything, you don't find anything. They had a warrant for the whole property. They of would keep they probably keep control of it for a little while. But yeah, eight days. Eight, eight days. Eight. I can understand. So, I personally could understand eight days to search the entire property, and if the warrant was issued for the entire property, right? I could understand it needing eight days. I don't understand why they would need to do that one individual trailer eight times in eight days. I mean, they searched the whole property, but his trailer was searched like eight times. Like his trailer. It wasn't that big, guys. Like it's a freaking single wide manufactured home. It's not an enormous or maybe it's a double, but still it was not a big house. It was a small house. You know, it and it was, I mean, we're talking about a guy who works in a salvage yard. His fiance has been in jail for the last five or six months, five months. And, you know, it's not real clean. It was basically a mess. His bedroom was a mess. His clothes were everywhere. The bed was a mess. That would take more time to search. Yes, but not eight separate searches. That's all I'm saying. So, well, all of a sudden, out of virtually nowhere... Sheriff Poggle and Ken Kratz, the sheriff and district attorney of Calumet County, who are allegedly heading up the investigation, although I beg to argue who was actually heading it up, but that's okay, announced that human remains were found on search number four of the property and that Teresa's key, the key to her car, So if you've seen Making a Murderer, you know what I'm talking about. But the key was a RAV4 Toyota key on a silver ring with one of those blue cloth bobs. Like, so it's not a lanyard, but it kind of looks like the, have you ever seen those lanyards that can come apart? Like you can clip them, like you have the big long lanyard and then the bottom of it is shorter and you can actually clip them apart. Uh, yeah. Okay, so it looked like the small side of the, of one of those unclippable lanyard fobs. Um, they also said that that key was found in Stephen's bedroom on that same day. So the same day they found alleged human remains in a fire pit behind Stephen Avery's trailer. They also found on search number four of his trailer... The key. Now, I call it the magic key, and here's why. It took four searches to find it, quote unquote, find it. But when it was finally found, it was right there in the open. Now, hold on. Also, let's talk about who found the key. Who found the key? That would be James Lank and Andrew Colburn. Those names sound familiar. Hmm. Two people who were just deposed in the lawsuit and are Manitowoc County Sheriff's officials. So people who are directly involved in the lawsuit. Yeah, they're not just part of Manitowoc law enforcement. They were allowed to search the trailer and they magically found a key that was missed by all these others and but was not fourth well search. hidden. Correct. And wow. what it was, so you had James Link and Andrew Colburn, with a Calumet County Sheriff's deputy, I cannot remember his name, but they were all in there searching. Now, the Calumet County deputy 
knew that Manitowoc wasn't necessarily supposed to be involved, but he was kind of a lower peon, basically. So it's not he wasn't going to question anybody. And he wasn't told he needed to babysit them. He was just told he needed to escort them into the home to conduct a search. Why? So I don't know. <laughs> so he is in one corner of the room looking at something. Andy Colburn is in another corner of the room looking at something. James Link is over by Stephen's bed right next to his nightstand. Okay? And all of a sudden, James Link goes, um, I think I just found her key. And he steps back, and Andy and the other guy come to meet up with Link by the nightstand, and there is the key right there on the floor between the nightstand and some bedroom slippers, clear as freaking day. In the open where anybody who searched previously could have seen it, and he already knew it was her key? They come up with excuses. He said, I think I found the key, because it was a Toyota key. It could have been... They run a salvage yard. That's what I said. I was it like, could have been um, anybody's key, but how did you know it was the key? But anyway, that's not the point. So they find the key, find, quote unquote, find the key. Can I just say it? They plant the key. <laughs> I don't think you could necessarily make that statement. Okay. In boldly, my but... in my humble opinion, James Lank plants the key. Is that better? Does that make me less liable? In my opinion. James Link planted the key. That would probably make you less liable. Okay, that's all I care about. I just don't want to get sued by James Link. Other than that, I'll say what I want. He's a sleazy son of a bitch. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, he's sleazy. He just gets deposed, and then he has the balls to walk into Steven's trailer when he knows he's not supposed to be there, and he brings his buddy Andy Colburn with him, the one who, I don't know, freaking committed a Brady violation against fucking Steven when he didn't tell him about the phone call and then they're in his fucking house and that's when they find bones and a key? Okay, so if they found bones and did they find the bones? You know, I'm not sure. We haven't talked about the bones yet. I'm not sure. Okay, so the bones were found um, behind Stephen Avery's trailer in this like... So he had they had burn barrels all over the tra- all over the property, which is pretty common. Yeah, yeah. I, like even yeah. your mom has a burn barrel now. Yeah. So burn barrels are pretty common. We always had a burn you, barrel. Yeah, but let's explain explain to the audience what a burn barrel is in case they don't know, because that's not something we basically have a metal fifty five gallon drum with some air holes punched in it that you burn your garbage in or shot in, well, which I got to do that at your mom's. That was yeah. fun. Put some air holes in it, and that's where you burn your trash. Yeah, instead, because out in the rural areas there is no garbage collection really. So well, there can be, but more often than but not, it's actually rare. out there's there, not there's not. Yeah, and you burn the stuff that's easily burnable. You mulch some stuff, and right. so what Stephen so anyway. had behind his trailer was he had several burn barrels, two or three of them. I can't remember how many, but he had a few burn barrels, and then he also had like a, a pit dug out in the ground, and that was where they burned like bigger stuff. You know, stuff that wouldn't fit in the burn barrels, like old tires. He would burn old shredded tires, um, like uh. Him and Brendan had burned a, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Brendan is his nephew. And the kids had all, like, they liked to burn, like, old car seats that came out of the cars that they crushed. Because, you know, you got to pull the seats out before you crush it. They liked to burn that because it burned cool and, like, you know, stuff like that. Really smoky and, yeah. Yes, but it's still fun. I mean, I remember I used to love burning weird crap on bonfires. So they would, it was kind of like a bonfire pit. 
like a big, just a dugout hole in the ground. Okay. That's where the bones were found, was in that, that pit in the ground. Okay. So like burned bones. Charred pieces of bone. Okay. But it was clearly not a whole body. So I'm going to ask. Go ahead, ask. If, if you're suggesting that these were planted... That's my suggestion, yes. And where did they originally come from? Where did they find them? We'll get them? there. Okay. I have, see, that falls into my theory of what happened, which also falls in line with Stephen's attorney's theory of what happened. Okay. Ironically As long enough, as we'll get, we get an explanation. We're going to we'll, okay. get there. Unfortunately, it may not be in this episode. That's fine. But we will get there. We're... So, <clears throat> excuse me, in that press conference where Poggle and Kratz talked about finding human remains. That's what they called them, human remains at the time. It it was cremains, but... Well, any remains of a human body is human I know. remains. So they found human remains in that pit behind his house, and they found um, the key. They said all this in the press conference and stressed again in that press conference that Manitowoc was not involved in the investigation. They didn't mention that it was Freaking Manitowoc that found Manitowoc the evidence? Manitowoc is the one that finds the damn key, and they are still on TV insisting that Manitowoc has nothing to do with it. That Keeping their only involvement was to, quote, supply support. I said, no, what you need to say, Sheriff Poggle, is their only involvement was to plant evidence. But that's just my opinion. My opinion, my opinion. They were my supplying opinion. support. If that They were supplying evidence that we needed to secure a conviction. That's what he should have said, because that would be the truth. But anyway. I mean, if, if that's what they were doing, technically what he said wasn't wrong. They were supporting no, the investigation that they lying. wanted to do. He wasn't lying. He but at other this, than the fact that they weren't involved really. Well he I mean, was and that thing is at every damn press conference he said that. So it's like, well, that's not true, dude. Like, anyone with a pair of eyes can see that. Like, you're crazy. Anyway, Stephen was taken in and interrogated on November 9th of 2005 by investigators Mark Wiegert and Tom Fassbender. They were both investigators with Calumet County. Finally, we have the right county doing an actual job. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Took them long enough, but finally... Stephen, of course, denied any involvement in in what happened to Teresa or what allegedly happened to Teresa. And the thing is, as officer, they kept pushing him like they were hardcore, like they were like West Memphis three interrogation level of of not cool with him. But he never wavered. And I will also point out that from November of 2005 until today which is what are we may 21st of 2020 yeah his story has never changed or wavered and that's a long time that's important it's very important he his story has never changed they also tried to like trap him really i mean it's it's a really disturbing video to watch where he's being interrogated by uh Wiegert and fassbender because they continuously try to like trap him into admitting that he did something to her. Like, like they'll be like, well, we don't, 
you know, we we think we don't think you did it on purpose, Stephen. We don't think it was an accident, or we we think it was an accident. That's a common then, technique, right? And then they would, I know that, but still, it's still frustrating to watch because then they're like, and then he'd say something. Stephen would say something, and then they would be like, I can't remember verbatim, but they would say something like, "Oh, I remember what it was that ticked me off so bad." Is when he was like, "I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to her. She left, and that's the last time I saw her." And he's like, they, and well, he's like, well, if it wasn't you, then who? Because how were her bones? How was the car found on the salvage yard? And how were her bones found on your property? And how, how was this and that and the other? And then they kept like making up shit. Like, why is her DNA in your house? Her DNA was never found in his house. Yeah. They, they also lie about evidence. That's uh, another, Not once has another common thing. Not once has one shred of Teresa's DNA been found anywhere in Steven's house, in Steven's garage, in any of Steven's vehicles, on Steven, nowhere ever has Teresa's DNA been found, except in one instance, and we'll get to that later. But it ju- it just made me so angry because they were constantly like, and then he'd say something else and they'd be like, well, when he, they said, we don't think it was on purpose, we think it was an accident, and he said, I didn't do it. And then they twist it and go, oh, so you did it on purpose? And he's like, no, I didn't do it at all. Like, for someone someone who only has an IQ of 70 and isn't the brightest bulb, he stood his freaking ground. Like, I have to give him major props. Like, he didn't let them twist anything or twist him up or... Like he really, I mean, maybe the 18 years in prison and all the other stuff that happened before maybe helped him in that regard, but. That's possible. But um, he knew like he could, like, obviously he could, he could see it when they were trying to trip him up and he didn't let them. So the, I really appreciated seeing that because they kept saying, oh, you may, we understand if you made a mistake, Stephen, we understand if you made a mistake. And he's like, I didn't make any mistakes. I didn't do anything. Like. She took and, pictures and she left. Um, and Stephen kept saying, even to Weigert and Fassbender, he kept saying, like, you know, basically saying that he thinks someone set him up. It's like somebody set me up. And he would even bring up the lawsuit and be like, you know, I was afraid something like this was going to happen when I sued everybody. Like, you know, and and they laughed it off. They were like, nobody set you up, Stephen. Please don't do that. Please don't plant evidence. Please don't set people up. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Really? Other than recently co- being caught on body joke. cam. <laughs> yeah, caught on body cam planting drugs. Never happens. But it never, ever happens. They never arrest anyone who's innocent. They never convict anyone who's innocent. And they never, ever plant evidence. My, my, the one thing I always say, and I'll say it here on the podcast, police are like, I'm sorry, but they are like any other subsection of the American population. Yep. You have the good ones. Yep. You have the average ones. Yep. And you have the bad ones. Oh, yeah. Bad ones get through the cracks and they are in there. Of course. So trying to paint I them s- all as bad is wrong. Oh, absolutely trying to paint wrong. them all as heroes is wrong. Absolutely. I have had my interactions with both. Both. So have I. And I will say there are some stellar, amazing, heroic honorable police officers and sheriff's deputies and all that, you know, staters and all that, they are out there and they are wonderful, amazing people. But for every 10 of those, 
there's one that will plant evidence in every single city and country and county and state. Not country. Well, I, I don't know about in every single one because there are some pretty small counties and stuff. Oh, well, okay. But, but at least in every state. You, yeah, you, there, there's going to be a percentage. There are bad that, apples. There are the ones that go in there because they want the power trip. Well, and what you have to remember, though, is you cannot let the bad apples rot the whole tree because that the whole tree is not bad. Because really, there's only a few bad ones. Because the rest are either mediocre or really great. But I'll take a mediocre cop over a bad one any day. I will take any honest cop over a dishonest one. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's... Well, because a dishonest cop can destroy your life in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, as a result of this, the Avery Task Force ended up disbanding because, obviously, he had been named a suspect and he had been arrested for murder. So all of the wrongfully convicted people lose out because now they don't want to be associated with that? uh, The Avery Task Force disbanded, but not before passing the original legislation. The bill passed. Oh, okay. Good. That's good. The bill passed, but because after it passed and it was done, they no longer wanted the Avery Task Force name. So they disbanded that group and kept doing the work, but more quietly. Yeah, they could have done a little better job of investigating corruption in the forces. Mm, obviously. Um, they also discontinued attempts to get compensation for Stephen, and all the remaining depositions in the civil suit were canceled. Case dropped? Sort of. They They ended up negotiating a settlement because... Obviously, he was wrongfully convicted the first time, and he did deserve compensation for that. The state and county both admitted that. But instead of the $36 million payday he was supposed to get, he got a $400,000 payday, which would be great, except now he has to defend himself against murder charges. Here's money to pay for your lawyers for this. Pretty much, yeah. That's what it boiled down to. And uh, yeah, so Stephen has been arrested for murder and a few other things like uh i can't remember the exact charge charges but uh you know mutilating a corpse and that kind of thing so anyway yeah it it's not looking good for poor steven here that's for sure and in the next episode we will get into what happened after he was arrested because there was actually a lot. And this is when family members start um, becoming involved in the investigation, even though they totally didn't want to. And this is when the most egregious thing that took place in this case, in my opinion, occurred and is something that I consider completely unforgivable. But we will talk about that in the next episode. If you haven't figured it out, we're going to talk about Brendan Dassey and what occurred with him in early 2006. So thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we will catch you in the next one. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Ultimately, the system works. Consequences.